All right, I'm going to begin by praying this morning. We're on our seventh week, part three of submission. I got the hardest passage that was ever written in the Bible. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have given us companions on our journey. And while we're striving to be like you, we know that we will never achieve the purity um, that you intended for us without the covering that you have given us. So, Lord, we come to you grateful and submissive to your sovereignty and your generosity and your mercy and your kindness and your grace. And, Lord, we ask that you make us vessels that behave likewise. And I pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so yes, um, I walked in this morning and several of you told me how important it was that I clarify that difficult passage of scripture. And so I thought, well, that's easy. Because every commentary, and I read about five, including my notes, every commentary said something akin to this. Peter's exposition in 3, 18 through 22 is one of the most difficult portions of the New Testament to interpret. And since you know my long history of Bible scholarship, you know I'm on this. So what I decided to do was, um, there, were, there were two passages of scripture that, you know, that were attracted to this, this one here at the end, which was difficult. And we finished our um, fifth lesson out just now, sort of touching on it. And, and then the one that was good. And so I decided to go with the easy one. <laughs> I've decided that I'm going to teach on this easy scripture because honestly, I think it will clarify the hard scripture. And this easy scripture is from 1 Peter 3, 13. Who, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. We know that this is a passage this week that um, talks a great deal about the submission of suffering and being willing to be under that kind of persecution, whatever it looks like and wherever God has put us. We are not in uh, a nation where we have to fear for our very life, but we do have to fear for the thriving of our relationships here in this country when we come out as a Christian. And the thriving that we call you know, viable here, the persecution that we receive keeps us from doing what, what, we would have, what God would have had us done, have, have us do. It keeps us afraid. And in this passage, we're going to hear, do not be afraid. And a friend of mine sent me a, um, a supportive email this week, and he said, you know, 365 times, which correlates to once a day, Scripture says, do not be afraid. And I'm going to tell you, do not be afraid of the persecution that we get here in the Fox Valley, the one that God has put you in because he has something bigger, bolder planned for us. So we're going to start off with these two big ideas because they're Jesus-y words or, or Bible words, <laughs> zealous and righteousness. Raise your hand if you've used zealous in the last decade in a sentence. <laughs> and generally when we hear the word righteousness, we know we're talking about something heavy and hard and difficult and holy, and we don't use that too much, right? Except we say somebody else is all self-righteous. So... We don't really use those words very much, but they are used quite a bit in Scripture. 30 to 36 times we hear the word zeal, or some form of the word zealous, in overall in arching Scripture. And over 500 times we hear the word righteous. So clearly, um, righteous is a big word, and zeal for righteousness is a good thing. So we're going to talk about all of these things a little bit. We're going to first define the word zeal. 
um, which is a fervor, another word we don't use a lot, but we might say enthusiasm or passion or even fanaticism or as Pastor Brian from our church would say, a worship of. We all worship something. A fervor for a person, let's say fever, fever. Justin Bieber. A worship of a cause. All over the news, we have zeal. Worship of an object, let's say the World Series trophy. Worship of a desire. If only I was skinnier. Fervor for a desire or an endeavor. My 26th marathon or some such crazy thing. I'm going to Hawaii next week, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Not that, sorry. But my boss just went to Hawaii to run a marathon, and I thought, what, what a waste of a vacation. <laughs> That's not on my... Not on my top ten of anything. Okay, so um, there's a lot of zeal in scripture. I think I may have put quite a few references down on your page there. Um, we have references for the zeal of the people of Israel. Uh, we have references for the zeal of the house of God. If you'll look at that Psalm 69, 9 verse, and then you will hear that same verse, zeal for your house, zeal for his house consumed consumes me. That is in reference to Jesus, who in the temple had just ch uh, charged out the money changers, and that zeal, they took that scripture and they recognized his uh, messianic stance in that he was predicted to have zeal for his house. So this is certainly an application to Jesus himself. Uh, the zeal of the Lord of hosts in, in Isaiah, the zeal, Lord's zeal for his people, um, in Isaiah, there's a description of one who puts on righteousness. It's almost like the Ephesians passage where there's a dressing and the end is wrapped in zeal. There are in Mark, people were zealously proclaiming Jesus' miracles, even when he said, please don't tell anyone, but they zealously proclaim, proclaimed them. There's a zealousness for the law of Moses as reported in Acts 21.20, and that's in reference to Paul, who was zealously persecuting the church for the sake of Mo Moses. Um, then Paul later in Romans, speaking to the people of Rome, instructs people to follow and lead with zeal. He affirms zeal for himself, those who are following him well, and their zeal for their own earnestness in Christ. Um, again, in Galatians and Philippians, we see Paul's former zeal as persecutor of the church. He's actually saying it of himself. And in Titus, um, we, follow, we're, we hear them describing Christ followers as zealous for good work. Clearly, the word zeal is neither positive nor negative. It's neither good nor bad. It's a verb that means fervor. But all zeal is not equal. In Romans 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law of for righteousness to everyone who believes. You can have a zeal for God and not understand a zeal for the righteousness that he can impart. You can have a zeal for your religion, for your patterns, for your tradition, for your family structure, for your family history within religious confines, but if you don't know that the righteousness that you seek comes from Jesus and him alone, you may have a zeal for your own behavior. And that's not the same thing. 
So Paul is aching here. My heart's desire and prayer for them is that they not be more religious, more fanatically involved with another movement, but they have a zeal for the righteousness that comes only from Christ, that they want nothing more than to have their saved souls be made obvious to others so there can be more saved souls. That is the zeal we're looking for, which is why those two words are essential for us to understand. Let's talk a little bit about righteousness. Um, scripturally and otherwise, there's a sort of a distinction between righteous behavior, which we are called upon as believers, as ones who have committed our lives to one who is righteous, is to be go ahead and do as he does. Um, and that uh, a standard definition for righteous deeds is acting in accord with divine or moral law. So in Society, we say someone is righteous when they're following the law. And in morality, it gets a little trickier. So those of you who got a Twix, here's your, here's your reference point. So um, I, I think there's, there's twin ideas here um, about righteousness. And they are these two ideas, doing the right thing for the right reason. Now you can do the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong reason for the right reason and then you're not righteous. Is it possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason? Can you think of a time when you may have done that? Like maybe you flattered someone so they'd like you back. <laughs> or the wrong thing for the right reason. Like I, had, I couldn't tell her this truth because of this other thing that we thought would happen. I think the challenge to be right turn only kind of people right thing, right reason, is a dilemma we will face from now until eternity. But it was so cool because I went to the store this week and I got Twix bars because I was thinking, you know, I want these twin ideas and it's, you know, a certain day today and I thought, candy, yes, chocolate gets women's attention. And here's the coolest thing, the Holy Spirit met me in the aisle at Walgreens. <laughs> so Twix bars have two rights and two lefts. Do you see the label on the top? You can buy the two rights, the right thing for the right reason bar, or you can buy the two lefts. We don't want that. We want the two rights. I gave you all right bars. Okay. So I thought, you know, isn't that fun how God uses a candy bar wrapper to, uh, to um, secure a notion in me that the right thing for the right reason is behaving righteously? And, you know, then that, there's no calories either, so that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, then we're going to talk about, so we're, in regard to, to right, right acting people, okay, now we're going to go to the hard scripture at the end, where our author Peter, who likes to tell us everything that ever was and ever could be about his relationship with Christ and how it's going to matter and what, how it's going to last because he loves us that much, and who had a limited time on earth and knew that too, talked about the days of Noah. And, and baptism and the confusing piece that he stuck in there just to make my lecture more difficult. So I went back and I read about Noah. And you know what it says about Noah? He's righteous. It says it a bunch of times. He's righteous. He's righteous. He's righteous. And his righteousness um, was seen by God. And his righteousness was he listened to the Spirit of God and did the right thing for the right reason, which in the world had to look like the wrong thing for the wrong reason. So you want to talk about persecution? We don't hear necessarily a lot of that in, 
in this scripture, but we know that Moses could not have been well understood, otherwise the boat had been full. So he made an ark, and he entered in on faith, and he behaved with righteous deeds all the way through. And the picture of baptism is the same as us. We enter in on purpose by faith. The water doesn't save us. We are saved through the water into the next place, just as Noah was. We are saved through the water because we entered the holy space that God set before us and said, this is the place where I redeem, I cleanse the problem of the earth and take you through and out of it and beyond it. That is our hope, that we will enter in a place and go into the hope that is yet to be. Now, the people in Noah's time did not understand that. I accidentally showed a movie to a bunch of children about Noah's Ark, thinking it would be very cute, and there would be two-by-two two animals. And it was about screaming people on the outside of the ark. Which I turned off real quick, and then we had a water balloon fight. <laughs> and that, honestly, that was a picture for me. See, God saved through faith the family of Noah in order to reestablish the authority, the sovereignty, the awe, the fear of God in the next generation. And then we hear in Moses' story, in Noah's story, um, chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis, how he did take the next generation and utilize them for the, for the perpetuation of this faith. By faith, in Hebrews it says, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, and by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This obscure scripture at the end of Peter makes sense to me now in light of righteousness, because we know that the Lord wants to bring us into his righteousness, which takes us to the next step. Can we be righteous by good behavior? Can enough good behavior make you righteous before God? How many of you have ever thought it could? Like if you just did enough right things, you would be right with God. This is the prevailing attitude of the church. It's the prevailing attitude of the world. It's the prevailing attitude because it makes sense in our, in our life. It, everything else works like that. If I, then he. If you, then I. It's conditional in that way. The radical thing about being a Christ follower is that you're following somebody with a radically different formula. And that formula is, try as you might, you are never going to reach the righteousness that only I can bring you to. You might make the ark, and you might get in it by faith, but it's my design, it's my water, it's my plan for the future. And that righteousness that comes to us is on, on account of us, is done in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We can't earn it, we can't work for it, we can only work out of it. And when we talk about righteous behavior... Can you repeat that? That was so powerful. Mm. Just, uh, I want to rewind you. Mm. I'm sorry. I'll try. Okay? Pray with me, those of you. The righteousness that Christ wants for us can only be given to us from him. We cannot work for it. We can only work out of it. He gave it to us in his death and resurrection on the cross. He said, 
I love you with an everlasting love. I submit my body so that yours can be risen with mine. I submit to that for your sake. I go to the courtroom where you are accused and guilty. I don't care how big or how small, you're guilty. I show up at the courtroom and I say, I've got this, Jesus says, I've got this, this is mine. I pay the price so she can go free. I am now under the law, right. The law holds nothing on me because I am right in the eyes of the judge. The fine has been paid, the penalty has been paid, and now I have what we call declared righteousness. And for those of us who know Christ in this generation, unlike Moses who knew of Christ, knew of the Messianic, knew through the Spirit, was communicated to through the Spirit, as were the prophets, Peter tells us that's communicating over time, beforehand, communicating this righteousness. He communicated this to Abraham. And in Hebrews, it tells us as well about Abraham. It was commended to him as righteousness. He, Abraham understood the greater good, the greater picture, the longer view of God, even though he wasn't necessarily living in the physical time of the physical Jesus Messiah. So we have a declared righteousness. I don't, I don't mean to assume anything in a room like this. I went to church for many years and did not understand this concept. And the lack of understanding of this concept, as I said, is not unique to me or even to people outside the church. It is, it, it is the concept of natural order of things. And there was a monk named Martin Luther who struggled with it. And here's what he, here's what he understood at the end of his storyline, which I'll tell you in a minute. When God's righteousness is mentioned in the gospel, it's God's action of declaring righteous the unrighteous sinner who has faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. The righteousness by which a person is justified or declared righteous is not his own, but that of another, Christ. Good deeds are good, but they are not the same as righteousness. Righteousness comes only through Christ. So speaking of Martin Luther, 500 years ago today, this monk, Martin Luther, who joined the church um, to figure things out, his parents had him in law school, and he was struggling with ideas and joined the church as a, um, at that time, one holy, holy Roman Catholic church, um, and he struggled with this notion of righteousness because he started to understand the awesome, fear-inducing, holy sovereignness of the great and glorious God and saw himself in relation to that and could not stand it. And he worked hard at it and he punished himself in an effort to be submissive enough to the holy God that he would accept him. And he began to study the scriptures for a way to understand how can I be in the presence of such great a holy judge just in, in the way that I am? Do I work harder? How much harder do I work? How many more hours do I study? How many more hours do I spend on a hard, cold stone floor on my knees in order that I might be acceptable to this great, holy God that loves me? How can I do it? And he realized he couldn't. And the reason this was a radical idea in the day is because it doesn't make that much sense. 
It doesn't make that much sense if you have a big, high, holy church and it's got process for you to get to holiness. And one of the aberrations that had developed over time was that there was a sense that we could not attain our own holiness, but those saints who had gone before us had accumulated so much, they could give it out like a gumball machine. And the church was understanding that those holy saints must be so much holier than our present-day saints that they would want us to be in, in heaven with God the same way Paul wanted it, the same way Peter wanted it. So therefore, we could maybe buy the indulgence, the gift of them, and redeem ourselves by this sacrifice of money. The sacrifice of money to buy indulgences from the high church became a thing. It actually is quite comforting if you think about it. If somebody told you, you have this stain on your record, and all you have to do is pay off a few people, and it will go away, you might be inclined to do it. Again, it's not an unnatural thought. It pervaded the thinking of the time because it's like the rest of the world. You get rid of the stain, you go forward. But how many stains? And what about the stains of the people that died already? Or the stains of the sins I haven't yet committed? You can see where this could go forever and ever and ever. And these indulgences struck him as, oh, that, that cannot be right. And so he began to study the scriptures written in Latin at the time. And he saw these two principles, that the Bible, the scriptures, is a central religious authority, and that humans can only reach salvation by faith. By faith, I built the boat. By faith, I got on the boat. By faith, I rode out the storm by faith. The work is done by someone else, and the partnership of us is our faith. Now this is radical because the central authority of the church is the one who was utilizing the system of giving people access to hope in heaven through these sold plenary indulgences, and it messed with things. So he asked for an audience. He wrote 35 theses, and today, 500 years ago, Reformation Day, he pounded them on the door of the church asking for a formal hearing, which he received in a place in Germany, a city named Worms, spelled Worms. And a conversation about these issues was called the, the, the collection of people, the group of people was called the Diet. So they called it the Diet of Worms, not the Diet of Worms. And at that time, they hashed through these things, and they told him, you're a heretic, and you're out. And Martin Luther was zealous for righteousness. He was zealous for righteousness. He didn't want to take down the church. He wanted to lift up the church. Now, what happened subsequently is not all that beautiful. The church began to divide in lots of different ways as they began to parse out what were the true beliefs. And this is why I want to stop you. When we get to a piece of scripture that we cannot figure out, Let's remember the ones we absolutely can. And the ones we absolutely can figure out is, I can't save myself, but i got to save your praise God. Amen. The rest of them, challenging. Sometimes. About the same time, Gutenberg uh, made the first European printing press. There were objects like it in China. But this was a mass-type mass printing press where you could move the the letters around, and I call it social media circa 1448. <laughs> it changed everything. More than Twitter, maybe. Hmm? Because what happened there was that the message could be perpetuated. Both the ideology about the message, and the conversation about the message, and the preaching on the message, but the message itself. And Gutenberg's first major production was the Bible in Latin. That meant that the average Joe, no, 
That meant people who could read, which is not the average Joe, could read the Bible. They could read it in Latin. We see what the next step needed to be, don't you? After Martin Luther brought this problem to the church and he went away um, for 10 months, he translated the Bible into the vernacular, German. So the German people, who are not Latin speakers, could begin to parse out the scriptures as well. And of course, ever since then, we have lots of versions. Sometimes we're even talking about them in our lessons. And because we have lots of versions, understanding the Bible is always easy. Right? I wish it were so. I wish it were so. So I wonder, Lord, why did you give us this great teaching, useful for teaching and rebuking and training and righteousness, and we can't always understand it? Because the opposite of end of that is the ignorance that Paul talked about, where we have a zeal for the wrong thing. So better that we be struggling in the right thing and not struggling at all. So here we have ourselves in this Bible study. There's probably a million of them going on this very morning somewhere in the world, and we're all struggling to understand the application of challenging principles. The ones that are written there about Noah and the spirits and the devil and fallen angels, and the ones that are written about our very souls. So where does this leave us? Well, it takes me to this easy scripture, which I love very much. And this is, 1 Peter 3, 15. Here's the parts of it. How to live out our zeal and our righteousness. Start off by have no fear or be troubled. Don't you love it how many times he tells us it's not to have fear? Would I be lying if I said I haven't brought up certain things because I was afraid of what would happen if I would have done that? My girlfriend this morning wanted to talk to her mom Actually, her father, who's in hospice right now and not doing well, she wants to go in and make sure that he's heard the saving knowledge of Christ, which she herself just received a few months ago. She wants it so desperately for him. She said, I have to be there while nobody else is listening. I said, no, no, you don't. Because you can have no fear. Because this is for them, whose zealousness might be for the wrong thing, who are missing the point, who haven't figured out the ark is the way to go. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's above anything else. Always being prepared to make a defense. That means we actually have a storyline. I think I've told you the story before of when somebody came up to me at a very uh, big event and said, what's different about you? And I said, ah, ah, can I get back to you? I, I didn't have any words. And thankfully the Lord gave me another time to tell her. But guess what she did? She was anyone who asked me. She ran up and asked me. And I needed to be ready with an answer for the person who asked me. This is not so hard. As I, as I pondered this, I said, this is not rocket science to have a reason for why I love Jesus, which my own daughter asked me recently. Why do you love Jesus so much? And my reason is there's a hope. There's a hope in Christ that doesn't exist anywhere else. Because I already know that my good deeds will not achieve me righteousness. That is a done deal. That is an obvious conclusion at this age. If I could have done enough good deeds, I might have been a little further up the train. But now I know the better I am, the worse I actually am. The more I know, the more I need, I know, I need, I need to know a savior. Now, as a 17, I was really close. <laughs> so be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks 
me. I love that. Be ready. Somebody's going to ask you, live like you're a question mark, though, please. Live salty. And do it with gentleness and respect, the way Jesus always talked to people. You know? Who do you say that I am? Or the way you talk to the woman at the well. You know? The way you talk to the lepers. What do you want from me? With gentleness and respect. And have a good conscience. Which means after the fact, if you get that icky feeling in your stomach that you did it wrong, you probably probably got some work to do. So, this is what we're to do. We're to live out our zeal and our righteousness so that it becomes infectious. Because the right thing for the right reason means the right reason is always so that, remember the so that lesson, kingdom gets raised up in, in the world. The right reason is so that Jesus gets famous, always. Not that the church gets bigger, there's more seats in the pew, that more buildings get built, that more funds get raised, that more hungry people get fed, but that Jesus gets famous. That's always the right reason. So I'm going to ask you right now, what's in your hope? Are you prepared to give a reason for your hope? And if you are not prepared to give a reason for your hope, you now have five minutes to do so. I'm leaving the end of this five minutes before our time is up for you to look into your soul and to say, do I have a hope, number one? And if I have a hope, what's it based on? Is it based on things like a, a tender love? Someone loves me tenderly like nobody else. Is it, is it based on a moment in time where I had a, um, a transition of heart or a physical healing? Is it based on the way a relationship was restored because I trusted God for it? You have a hope. And his name is Jesus. And why do you? And can you tell someone? You don't have to explain the Reformation or 1 Peter 3, 18-22. No one has ever asked me about that. You don't have to, have to explain the creation story because that's not the question. The question is, what's your hope? So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to sit there in quiet and read that just a little bit. If you want to share, or write a little bit rather, and if you want to share with the person next to you a few tidbits, a few bullet points, I would suggest that because that's being prepared. Okay, I'm going to pray for you and me. Heavenly Father, you are good to us and you give us all that we need to be all that you would have us. You are a great provider. So Father, as we seek to be ready for the conversations that may even go on today, um, give us the words, Lord. Give us the words that wrap around the truth that we have a hope in you so that we can be ready to share them whenever we're called upon. I pray for these ladies that they truly believe that you are enough and that frankly there is nothing else and that their hearts are thrown into your ark for your saving, for your eternal glory. You are the right reason, Jesus, and we give this time to you. 